Uh, well, we've been in Daniel. We started this series here uh, just last week as we're looking at how to thrive in a modern-day Babylon. And we are living in uh, a similar situation as we see Daniel. And so we want to go to him and, and these stories that we have to better understand how we thrive here in 2024. And so would you pray with me as we get started? Father, we thank you for the opportunity to dive into your word, uh, into this narrative, this story, and especially as we look at this dream that King Nebuchadnezzar has and how that should affect us and the interpretation of that. How, how do we respond to something like this? It's strange. It's different. Uh, it still happens today. You still use your supernatural uh, abilities and, and, and giving people dreams and visions. We know that you still do that today. And and we've seen that, but help us to understand this one so that we might apply it to our lives correctly. And allow me to just speak this with clarity so that you might be praised so that others will understand. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest con artists in American history is a man by the name of George C. Parker. Uh, after the Brooklyn Bridge opened in New York City in 1883, he saw a tourist who was admiring the bridge, so he decided to try and sell the bridge to him. And it was so easy, he decided to sell it again. And over a period of several years, he averaged selling the Brooklyn Bridge twice a week to unsuspecting tourists, and he sold it for as little as $50 and for as much as $50,000. He convinced buyers that they can make a fortune by charging a toll for people to cross the bridge. And he would produce official-looking papers and have them sign it as if the deal was true and everything seemed legit. And of course, it was the late 1800s, so it wasn't too hard to do that. On many occasions, police had to stop the new owners from erecting toll booths on their bridge. Uh, Parker was so successful that he actually branched out and he sold Madison Square Garden and Grant's tomb as he posed as Grant's grandson. He was arrested for fraud three times, and in 1928, he was sentenced to life in prison. He was sent to Sing Sing where he died, but not before selling the bridge again to at least two prisoners and one guard. <laughs> and, and we think, we hear that story and we think, how gullible could people be? And yet, and yet there are scams today, and we've all perhaps fallen prey to those scams through whatever means, a phone call, a text, an email. It happens with the advancement of artificial intelligence. We're going to have to be very careful because now they can take your voice, use your voice to then call family members, loved ones, as if it were you. I heard a story my mom was telling me a few years back where my cousin or someone posing as my cousin called my grandmother to bail him out of jail. That's odd because my cousin is a children's pastor. Uh, in Houston. It would be odd for him to be going to jail. And thankfully, before my grandmother did anything, she called his parents. There will always be people trying to scam us. But the most dangerous scam of all is to reject the work of Jesus, to reject his church in exchange for the false promise of happiness and peace and fulfillment that comes from our modern day Babylon. In our text today, we're going to see the difference between a scam. And the real thing, 
the wise men, the enchanters, all the sorcerers of Babylon are going to be exposed as frauds compared to Daniel, who has the one true God on his side. Now, most likely, Daniel and his buddies are done with their training at this point. They've completed all of those three years. And because they are lumped in with the other wise men of Babylon, is is why we assume that, King Nebuchadnezzar, in the second year of his reign, has a very strange and kind of disturbing dream one night. It was so disturbing that he couldn't sleep. He calls in all the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the astrologers. He demands that they tell him what the dream means. Now, that's not an unusual request. And oftentimes, these men would perhaps be able to translate and interpret a dream pretty well. But old King Neb throws a bit of a curveball at them. He's not going to tell them the dream. He wants them to first tell him what he dreamt and then interpret the dream from there. Now, maybe he can't quite remember. Maybe he's just testing his guys. Either way, this is a big ask. Tell me what I was dreaming. I'm not going to tell you the dream. I want you to tell me the dream first, and then you have to interpret it. The wise men just kind of gloss over this fact. They they just act like he didn't say that. And in Daniel 2.4, they all say, Long live the king. Tell us the dream, and we will tell you what it means. Now, I like that confidence. Shows you believe in yourself. It would be better if you just believed in God. But they all just kind of ignore the fact that Nebuchadnezzar has asked them to tell him the dream first before explaining it. So they try to butter him up a little bit. Long live the king, they try to say. Well, he is having none of that. He doesn't want to hear that. And so in Daniel 2.5, he says, I'm serious about this. If you don't tell me what my dream was and what it means, you'll be torn limb from limb. Your houses will be turned into heaps of rubble. But if you tell me what I dreamed and what the dream means, I will give you many wonderful gifts and honors. Just tell me the dream and what it means. (laughs) See, now the wise men are starting to sweat. Uh, King Neb, he's a bit of an unstable guy, to say the least. And this request kind of proves that. Again, it could be that he, he truly can't remember all of the dream. Perhaps it's kind of tormenting him because he can't remember it. And he just wants someone to... Tell him the dream and what it means. The wise men know we can't do this. We we cannot meet this demand. And they beg the king one more time, please, would you just tell us the dream and we promise we'll interpret it. King Neb is not in the mood for delays. And so in Daniel 2.8, he says, I know what you're doing. You're stalling for time because you know I'm serious when I say if you don't tell me the dream, you are doomed. So you have conspired to tell me lies, hoping I will change my mind. But tell me the dream and then I'll know that you can tell me what it means. (laughs) So Nebuchadnezzar just doubles down on his request. He's not in the mood for games. He believes that if they can actually interpret the dream, then they ought to be able to tell him what the dream was for whatever reason. It's the astrologer who speaks up, and he tells King Nebuchadnezzar this in Daniel 2.10. No one on earth can tell the king his dream. And no king, however great and powerful, has ever asked such a thing of any magician, enchanter, or astrologer. The king's demand is impossible. No one except the gods can tell you your dream, and they do not live here among people. Now, the astrologer was partially right. No earthly being could grant this request, but only the one true God could actually tell him his dream. So King Neb is hot 
At this point, he orders that all of the wise men in Babylon be killed. We've spent the last several months doing some training and evaluation of some potential new elders, and we'll be bringing those elders to you here in a month or so. And part of our training this past week was talking about how elders have to be thermostats, not thermometers. Thermostats are able to control the environment in a room. A thermometer just reacts to it. And that's what we see Nebuchadnezzar doing. He's just a thermometer. He's reacting to the fact that they can't tell him his dream. And his reaction in this thermometer kind of way is to say, okay, then you're all gone. Execute all the wise men. And because of the king's orders, the king's guard shows up to Daniel and his friend's house to kill them, even though they did nothing, had no part in this. But the text says that Daniel handled the situation with wisdom and discretion. One of the things that we will see in the book of Daniel over and over again is the sovereignty of God. And that simply just means that that God rules and reigns over everything, even the affairs of men. God's sovereignty will be on display in our text this morning, throughout the rest of this book as well. God is the one who is going to handle this delicate situation through the prophet Daniel. And our first takeaway from Daniel 2, should be to trust the sovereignty of God. That's what we see Daniel doing right away. First, he runs to the king because he's got to buy some time. And he knows the king is a little bit unhinged. And so he goes to the king, he buys a little bit of time, and then he turns directly to God in Daniel 2.17. It says, Then Daniel went home after he's bought the time, and he told his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah what has happened. He urged them to ask the God of heaven to show them his mercy by telling them the secret so they would not be executed along with the other wise men of Babylon. So Daniel, he goes home. He tells his friends, listen, we have a fairly important prayer request. In fact, it's more than fairly important. It is a life and death situation, and it needs our attention right away. And it needs more than just attention. It needs a night of consistent prayer so that God might spare our lives and reveal to us what this dream is. Now, these men trusted the sovereignty of God, and so they react immediately with prayer. Have you ever been in a life and death situation where you acted immediately with prayer? I would say a lot of us probably have. Many of us have, perhaps maybe even multiple times. My immediate reaction as, as I drove to the hospital after hearing that my dad, had his heart had stopped, fallen over in his bedroom, my immediate reaction was to pray. And we sat in the waiting room and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed until they came in and told us we can't get him back. But that was my immediate reaction. And I've had many moments where it was immediate and consistent prayer Because it was life or death kind of a situation. And the truth is, even the unchurched will do this. When a tragedy happens in our world, they will lean into the Lord. They're not sure what they're doing. They're not sure if it's going to work. But they lean into the Lord because they want to know, will I I receive anything from Him? They want help. And so they pray when it's life and death. But I wonder, do we do the same thing? Do we react in the same way when it's not as bleak? When the situation's not as desperate, when it's just your personal finances, do you immediately go to Him in prayer? When it's relational strife, is our first response prayer? I'm trying to do that more and more. 
in my own life, but I don't do it perfect. And sometimes I lean on my own understandings and my own abilities. Anybody else in here ever do that? Right? You better raise your hand. I don't want to be alone in that. We do. We do, though, don't we? Proverbs 3, 5 tells us to trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek His will in all you do, and He will show you which path to take. If you spent some time in the church, you probably recognize that passage. It's a pretty well-known verse. We put it up in our houses. We put it on our cars, tattoo it on our bodies, maybe. I wonder sometimes if we don't use those specific passages in those places because they're the ones we struggle the most to actually obey. Maybe that's not always the case. But if we truly want to trust the sovereignty of God, we should probably respond like Daniel and his buddies and hit our knees before we do anything else. Another well-known passage is Proverbs 16, 9. It says this, In his heart a man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. We want to stay in step with the Lord. We don't want to get too far ahead of him. We don't want to be too far behind. Just right there, right behind him as he leads us. I read a story once about this little girl who had been uh, sent to bed, and, and she went upstairs, had her shower, got her PJs on. But while she was getting ready, there was this storm that rolled in. She was kind of scared of storms, and, and so she had remembered the time not too long ago when the storm kind of rattled the house, and it was scary. The electricity went off and on and finally went off, and they had to light candles. And so she was, needless to say, scared, and she asked her mom and dad, can I sleep in your bed tonight? They said, that'd be fine. And before going to bed, she said this prayer. Dear God, I hope it doesn't thunder and lightning too much more. I hope the lights don't go out. And then she paused and said, but I thought it over, and you can do what you want. Amen. <laughs> I think that's a child's way of saying I trust you. I'm scared. I'm scared of this thing, and I don't know what to do about it. But I trust you. And so do what you need to do. Do what you want. And I think we see that happening in, in Daniel and his friends' lives. They trust in the sovereignty of God. They had that kind of trust, and so they began to pray. All night long they pray, and finally God reveals the dream to them. In Daniel 2.19, it says, That night the secret was revealed to Daniel in a vision. They trusted in his sovereignty, and he answers by giving him a vision of the dream. Now in Daniel's day and in our day, God uses supernatural means to accomplish his goals. And there are still people who have dreams. In fact, in many Muslim countries, we are seeing over and over again conversion stories where part of that conversion is some sort of dream, some sort of vision that is given to this man or woman or child of Christ or of, of the Father, something, and that causes them to search out another Christian who will tell them what it is. And what I love from this text is how Daniel and his friends react, how they respond to God revealing this dream. They offer him praise. And so our, tech, our second takeaway from Daniel 2 is to praise the sovereignty of God. When you trust him and he comes through and he answers, our automatic response should be a prayer of praise, even if he doesn't answer the way that you want him to. We still need to praise him. He still deserves that praise. So Daniel, he records the entire prayer of praise so that we can see just how sovereign our God is. He's, he's not, uh, Nebuchadnezzar is not the one ruling. It's truly God allowing him to rule. 
And so listen to this prayer of praise. Daniel 2.20. Praise the name of God forever and ever. For he has all wisdom and power. He controls the course of world events. He removes kings and sets up other kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the scholars. He reveals deep and mysterious things and knows what lies hidden in the darkness. Though he's surrounded by light, I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors, for you have given me wisdom and strength. You have told me what we asked of you and revealed to us what the king demanded. See, that's the kind of joyful praise that we need to show a sovereign God who chooses to hear our prayers and answers. They asked for wisdom, he gave it. His sovereign hand gave these men time to pray. And so they paused the the execution. Not all of the men in Babylon are, are destroyed that day, most likely. The God of heaven is the God of history. He is the one who sets and changes the times allotted for rulers and for nations, which is why Nebuchadnezzar is probably not sleeping well. He doesn't know what this dream means, and it's scaring him. It's darkness to him. For Daniel... It's probably comforting. It's probably reassuring. You'll understand that here in a second. I love that Daniel includes his three friends within the prayer of praise because they were there too. They shared in that time of prayer together. Later, he's going to share the honor he receives with them as well. But this is how we respond. When a crisis happens today, this is how we respond. We trust and we praise. Ask for what you need. James 1.5 tells us if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and He will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. I love that passage. God is saying, listen, if you need something, ask me. If you need wisdom, come ask me. I'd love to give you some, but you need to ask. You need to trust. And it's perfectly acceptable when He gives us that wisdom to praise Him even out loud. There's a story about a preacher that was trying to sell his horse. And one day a potential buyer came by the church and uh, he asked if he could ride the horse, just kind of a test ride. And uh, the preacher said, before you start, you should know that this horse only responds to church talk. Okay, so, so go is praise the Lord. Stop is amen. So I said, okay. So he gets on the horse. He says, praise the Lord. The, the horse starts to trot. He says, praise the Lord again. The horse starts to gallop. And then all of a sudden, he's getting close to, to a cliff, doesn't realize it's there. And he says, amen. And the horse stops. He says, whew. Praise the Lord. (laughs) Now, on a serious note, we truly do need to be people who praise the Lord, that lift up our praises when He answers exactly the way that we want Him to, like He did here for Daniel. It was exactly what they needed. And sometimes when you pray, He does give you exactly what you need. And sometimes when you pray, He says, wait. And sometimes when you pray, He says, No. No, you you can't have that. You don't need that. And in the waiting and even with the no's, we need to praise Him. When His answer is hard for us to take, He still deserves the praise. Psalm 145, verse 1 says, I will exalt you, my God and King, and praise your name forever and ever. I will praise you every day. Yes, I will praise you forever. Great is the Lord. He is most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. So praise the sovereignty of God. After a long night of prayer, 
and praise. Daniel is ready. He's equipped. He can return to the king. He stops the execution order, at least for his buddies, probably for everyone. He stands before King Nebuchadnezzar. The king's a little skeptical. He's skeptical. He's like, I'm not sure that you can do this. I've had other wise men come. They're saying they can't do it, that no one can do it. How in the world are you telling me that now you can help? Because nobody else could. I'm, I'm a little skeptical. Maybe he thought Daniel was just trying to stall like the rest of the wise men. But what he says next, what Daniel says next, is so powerful and meaningful, not only for them, but for anyone who has ever followed Yahweh God. Daniel's been given an opportunity to speak before the king. And what he does in that moment is our third takeaway. We need to declare the sovereignty of God. That's what Daniel is about to do. That's what we must do. If we want to thrive in modern-day Babylon, we are going to have to declare the sovereignty of God. The king wants to know, Daniel, can you truly answer the question that I'm looking for? Can you really do this? And Daniel says, no. No, I can't. I can't. But the one true God can I don't have the answer, but he does. So in Daniel 2.27, he says, There are no wise men, enchanters, magicians, or fortune tellers who can reveal the king's secret, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. And he has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the future. Now I will tell you your dream and the visions you saw as you lay on your bed. So Daniel confesses, Listen, there's no wise men in all of your kingdom that can tell you what this dream is. And then he mentions this pivotal, wonderful phrase that comes out of the mouth of Daniel. He says, but there is a God in heaven. And that phrase goes way beyond this story, church. That phrase is what Babylon needed to hear, but it's also what our modern day Babylon needs to hear today. There is a God in heaven. That is what people truly want to know. Is there a God in heaven? Does he care about us? Is this power available to us? There will come a point in your life, just like for King Neb, where all of the earthly strategies are going to fail. All the wise men, all the enchanters, all the sorcerers, all the fortune tellers, all the scientists, all the doctors are not going to be able to answer this deep question, is there a God? Does He care about me? And my job, at the most basic level, is to stand up here and proclaim to you, there is a God in heaven. There is a God in heaven, and that should change completely the way that you live in every area of your life. I know you've tried to fix that relationship, and nothing seems to work. But I have good news. There is a God in heaven who can mend relationships, and His power starts where yours ends. There is a God in heaven I know that you have tried over and over again to guide that child down the right path and you've done everything you can, everything you can think of to help them, to teach them, to guide them and you feel like there is nothing left that you can do but there is a God in heaven and He is watching over them. I know you've tried to overcome that addiction. And over and over again, you just seem to fall short. Your heart desires wholeness, but the flesh just keeps pulling you back in. And you think there is no hope, there's no point anymore. But there is a God in heaven who can transform your life and give you the wholeness that you need. You're disappointed in the politics of our country. Join the club. 
Democrats disappoint us. Republicans disappoint us. If they put us in charge, we'd probably disappoint them too. But there is a God in heaven. And so we don't follow a donkey or an elephant. We follow the lamb. Church, there is a God in heaven. I hope, I hope that you believe that and you live by that. And you declare his sovereignty to the Babylon that is outside these walls that is desperate to know the answer. Is there a God? Does he care about me? And we can proclaim that and declare that to them. Yes, 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 there is a God in heaven. And yes, he cares for you. And he is working in the life of his people all of the time. And he was working in Daniel's life to show his sovereignty as he interprets the king's dream. And so finally, in Daniel 2.31, we get the description of this dream. Daniel says this, In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge, shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. And its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. And as you watched, a rock was cut from the mountain, not by human hands, It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. And then the wind blew them away without a trace like chaff in the threshing floor, on the threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. All right, so now we have the dream. It's very interesting how this statue is fashioned together with with all these different kind of materials. And then a rock crushes the statue you can understand why nebuchadnezzar would want to know what does this mean and daniel begins to explain to him everything this dream means he says okay you are that head of gold king nebuchadnezzar you're you're the head of gold and there's a kingdom that's going to come after you it won't be quite as good as yours in that sense it will be silver And there will be this kingdom that that comes. And then after that will be another kingdom. Again, not quite as powerful, represented by the belly and the thighs of bronze. Following that will be yet another kingdom, perhaps a longer kingdom because of the legs. And and, and it's it's still not as good as the one before, but, but it will last for a while. Eventually, though, there'll be a mixture of iron and clay to kind of show that that kingdom is going to be divided. Just like iron has is is strong and clay is kind of weak there'll be parts of that kingdom that are weak and that are strong it's an incredible dream what makes it all the more amazing is how historically accurate it is and so babylon is the the gold head nebuchadnezzar is ruling currently as we're reading daniel the silver portion of the statue represents an empire called the medo-persian empire we'll actually see that here later in daniel The bronze is a kingdom that's next, and and it's most likely Greek. The the Greeks, with Alexander the Great, as they took over, uh, his army pioneered the use of bronze and weaponry. And so he is the bronze part. The silver part, the legs, most likely represents Rome as they overthrew Greece in uh, 63 B.C. And the mixture of iron and clay represents how Rome eventually splinters into different kingdoms and nations. So by the power and wisdom of God, Daniel is predicting 500 years into the future and even further than that. The point was not the prediction, though. The point was to declare the sovereignty of God because the rock from the mountain is actually the main character in the dream. And Daniel describes that to him. 
helping him understand. He says in Daniel 2.44, During the reign of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and it will stand forever. That is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, though not by human hands, that crushed into pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. The rock is the kingdom of God. And more precisely, the rock is Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes that abundantly clear many times in his ministry. One of those times in Matthew 21, 42, Jesus says, Didn't you ever read this in Scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it's wonderful to see. I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation that will produce proper fruit. Anyone who stumbles over that stone will be broken into pieces, and it will crush anyone it falls on. Sounds a lot like Daniel, doesn't it? It's clear. This stone represents Jesus. And like this stone, Jesus is not made with human hands. The rock is also the least valuable and in this dream of the, the materials, it's not gold, silver, it's not bronze, but the rock comes with the power of God, and so it crushes all the other materials into dust. That may represent how Jesus didn't come with all the fancy bling of gold, silver, and bronze. He was born into a poor family, poor conditions. He never owned property. He never raised an army. He was not the head of gold, but he came with something that, that gold didn't have something that King Neb and all the other rulers would never have, and that is the death-defying power of God. The rock also represents Jesus and how he starts small and fills the whole earth. Jesus describes the kingdom of God just like that three different times in Matthew 13. We see at the end of Matthew 13, verse 33, he describes it like this, the kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in making bread, even though she put only a little yeast In three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Before that, he describes the kingdom of God like a mustard seed and how it's the tiniest little thing, but it grows into the largest plant in the garden. Jesus, after he left, only left less than 200 people, less than 200 people, less than the amount of people sitting in this room to spread the kingdom. And now it is the largest religious movement in the world. And church, it continues to grow, even in the most difficult situations. Do you know that the place where the gospel is spreading the most are in the countries that have the least amount of money? Africa, Asia, and Latin America. Two-thirds of all Christians live in those three places. Two-thirds. By 2050, most experts agree that 80% of all Christians will live in those three places. Today, there are more Christians in Africa than in all European countries combined. And this morning, more Christians worshipped in just Kenya than in all of Canada. We used to talk about the villager in Africa and how what happens if he doesn't hear the gospel. It is statistically more likely that you will run into a born-again Christian in Africa than in Montreal. Do you know that In the 1970s, there was no legally functioning church in China. Not that there wasn't an underground church, but there was no legally functioning church in China. Today, it's estimated that the number of Christians in China exceeds that of the Christians in the United States. That potentially by 2050, China could be a majority Christian nation. Can you imagine what that would do? 
See, this is not our thing. It's not a Western thing. It began as a Middle Eastern thing. It graced the Western world for a little bit, but now it is making its way all around the world, just like Nebuchadnezzar's dream predicted. See, Jesus is the solid rock. And in this story, he is the solid rock that we ought to place our life upon. How do we respond to something like this? How do we, so many years later, respond to a story like this? I believe the best way to respond is to surrender to the sovereignty of God. Now, King Neb kind of does that, sort of. It's more of an enthusiastic acknowledgement than it is a surrender. But here's what he does. Daniel 2.47, the king said to Daniel, Truly, your God is the greatest of gods, the Lord over kings, a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this secret. It's not a complete surrender yet. For us, it ought to be a total surrender. A surrender to the solid rock who is Jesus Christ, who will rule all nations and does rule all nations. James 4.7 says, So humble yourselves before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. To submit means to surrender. We surrender to his sovereignty because clearly there is a God in heaven and his son is the solid rock on which that kingdom is being built, is built, and it will reign forever. The rock will destroy any man-made kingdom and it will destroy your kingdom and it will destroy my kingdom if I dare try to build one. But here's the thing. Jesus didn't come to destroy That is not what he came to do first. Eventually, yes, he will stand against those who who have come against him, but he didn't come to destroy. In John 3.17, Jesus says, God sent his son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. He didn't come to destroy, he came first to save. He didn't come to judge, not at first. He came to die for us, for our sins. He came to be the rock of our salvation, the foundation upon which we stand. And so the question I think perhaps some of us need to answer this morning in light of this message is where do you stand with Jesus? Where do you stand with him? Do you trust the sovereignty of God? Really? When something happens, do you praise the sovereignty of God? Will you declare it? Are you willing to declare his sovereignty and fully and completely surrender to him? Where do you stand with Jesus? He wants to save you. He's given you the choice, though, to either build your life on the rock or be crushed by it. That's what this dream is really telling us. In a modern-day Babylon, people assume they have two choices. They assume it's either assimilation or separation. That we either have to assimilate into the culture, look like the culture, sort of be like the culture in order to gain people into the church. And so we have to assimilate. Or we say, well, no, we got to separate. It's got to be complete separation, not look anything like it. And we leave the lost behind. But there's a third option, and it is transformation. Not assimilation, not separation, transformation. And that is what we see Daniel and his friends choose. They choose to allow themselves to be transformed, and then they begin to transform those around them. Even King Nebuchadnezzar does a little bit of it. And that same thing can happen today. That same kind of transformation can happen. We've seen it already this morning. Three baptisms already. Transformation is what we have to shoot for. But first, you have to figure out where do you stand with Jesus. I hope that you choose every day 
to surrender to the sovereignty of God, to be transformed so that you can help others be transformed. There will come a day, church, when this dream will come to complete fruition. Every last bit of it will come true. In fact, we have a, a description of that. In Revelation eleven fifteen. it says this, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices shouting in heaven, The world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. That day is coming, church. Where do you stand with Jesus? What about your family and your friends and your neighbors and your coworkers? Where do they stand with Jesus? If they don't stand with him, do everything you can to introduce them to the solid rock or remind them of who their solid rock actually truly is. I want to close with a prayer similar to what the 24 elders pray right after Revelation eleven fifteen. I can't pray it exactly the same way because not all of it has happened yet. They're talking about a future event, a, something that hasn't, hasn't come. And so I, I changed this prayer a little bit, but I think it will fit what we've talked about today. So would you pray with me? Lord, we give thanks to you. You are God Almighty. You are the one who is, who was, and who is to come. We trust in your sovereignty because we know that you alone reign supreme and we praise you. Within your sovereignty, you sent Jesus, the solid rock, to save us. And we do declare that that day of judgment and reward will come to your servants, your holy servants, your holy people, whom you have made holy. We didn't do it, you did. And we surrender to you as a church because we fear you and we fear your name. And we pray all of that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Love you, church. Have a great week.